This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Emily Cohen. In many urban settings, there's a significant unhoused population on the streets. According to data from 2020, more than half a million people in the United States are unhoused. Many of us want to help, but may feel conflicted about how. On today's Peace Talks Radio, Emily Cohen is going to explore the dynamics of homelessness with three guests working to assist people living on the street. And Emily's online with us from her studios at KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. Emily, how did you see this conversation about homelessness or unhoused populations as a matter of concern in our program about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution? Well, look, homelessness is so present in the U.S., and it's been growing in recent years. We're one of the wealthiest countries in the world, yet we have this huge inequality. This contrast between immense wealth and extreme poverty is ultimately about conflict. And where there's conflict, whether it's between people, populations, or within ourselves, there's an opportunity for peacemaking. Right. And I know that from personal experience, when I see unhoused people on the streets where I live, I am in conflict immediately because I want to help. But I've heard people say, don't give them money, you know, support your shelters in town, uh, what to do, whether to feel safe doing it. There's a lot of things at work uh, just from a personal standpoint. Yeah, it's hard to see human suffering. It stirs up a lot of those feelings you mentioned. There's frustration. Why is this happening? Why is there this inequality? Sadness and anger sometimes, guilt. Uh, And my goal with this episode is really to humanize the crisis and the people experiencing it. And who do you have lined up today and how do you hope to have them help? I spoke with Eva Thibodeau-Grasic, who runs an organization that provides supportive housing to people facing long-term chronic homelessness in Houston. It follows what's known as a housing first model that gives people housing without the usual prerequisites such as addiction, treatment, or employment. And it's a model that's touted as having some of the most success in reducing chronic homelessness. I also spoke with Miranda Twitchell, who's lived on the streets in Salt Lake City on and off for about the past decade. She's a leader in her community, and getting to hear from someone experiencing homelessness firsthand, I think is something many people are often curious about. But first, we're going to hear from Ren Fialka, who runs a nonprofit that distributes personal care, clothing, and hygiene supplies to unhoused people. She said, human beings need love like plants need water. So eye contact, a good morning, those things can go a long way. Fialka started her nonprofit nearly a decade ago after a conversation with a man living on the streets in San Francisco. And I started out that day going downtown to lend my voice to the Ferguson protests. And that day was a pivotal day in my life. It changed my life. I ended up having a very informative conversation with this elderly gentleman who was living on the streets. And we were surrounded by people who were protesting for human rights. Ironically, what we were watching was a bunch of people who... I think really truly believed in the cause, but were very unaware of their immediate surroundings, which were uh, a street corner where a lot of people that were experiencing homelessness actually considered their home. And it had been completely turned into an area where everybody was riled up. The police had come in. A place that was their only sanctuary was 
all of a sudden becoming just a lot of negative, angry energy. And a lot of the police that had come in were actually focused more on the street residents there than some of the people that were protesting or acting out in some ways that weren't really helpful to anybody. And I sat with this man for over an hour, almost two hours, and just spoke about life, spoke about everything, his experiences on the street and human nature in general and the protests and racism and theology and philosophy. And at the end of it, I'd, I just, I left, I got up and I just had this really familiar melancholy just feeling that helplessness that you feel when you've bonded with someone and you really just, you know that they're going back to something that's really unpleasant and you don't know what you're equipped to do to help them in any kind of sustainable way. And instead of just walking away with that feeling, I turned around and asked him if there was a small bag of things I could bring him the next day that would make his day-to-day easier what would be in it? And he just lit up and laughed and said, you know, no one's ever asked me that, and then proceeded to give me the list that we use today in Spread the Love Commission of things, some things that you would, common sense would say, yes, of course, anybody would need that if they were living on the streets. And a lot of things that house people would never, it would never occur to even think about what people might be missing when they don't have a home. Uh, so yeah, that's how that's how Spread the Love uh, was born, was on that day. What is in that list? Well, it depends on where we are. Um, that list has grown since the day that I'm speaking of. But um, things like underwear, clean, you know, new underwear and socks, long johns, Something really interesting called a P38 can opener is quite helpful for people. Something that it's an army surplus can opener. Hand sanitizer, it can be used not just for uh, cleaning your hands, but it can also be used as fuel. Tuna is huge, helps to have a P38 can opener. Hand warmers are essential, emergency blankets. You started this nonprofit from this conversation. Yes. What do you say to people who might see unhoused people on the street but then don't know how to help? It's one of the huge elephants in the room is that sense of helplessness, which I was experiencing that day too. You know, the first thing, and it's the reason we call it Spread the Love, is the first thing that anybody needs. And I always say this, you know, human beings need love like plants need water. It's essential. And The first thing that anybody really truly needs is to be acknowledged. And, of course, you you need to recognize, just like you would with anybody else, that you're interacting with someone you've never met before. You don't know their history. You don't know anything about them. I think the stigma that people experiencing homelessness have had to face and deal with every day, people initially, you know, a, a housed person is usually has some kind of distrust or fear, reticence about approaching them at all. There's been studies where people that are looking at someone who is obviously experiencing homelessness, actually their brain sees them as an object instead of a person. So I think the dehumanization of homelessness has been the big problem from the beginning. 
the first thing that you want to do if you want to engage with somebody who's experiencing homelessness is first use your common sense that you would with anyone. You know, check your situation out, kind of feel the vibe with them. Just even a, a smile, eye contact, a good morning, that's a great place to start. If it's someone you pass every day, let it bloom naturally like any other relationship. If it's somebody who's out there actually with a sign, take a minute to read the sign. Don't immediately go to whatever potential horror story you've heard from somebody else or a negative experience you've had yourself. Everyone's an individual. That population is as widely varied as any other population we have in the United States. We've now been doing this for over nine years. And no matter what we bring out there, including tents and sleeping bags, what we get, our feedback has always been, the thing that you brought out here today that was the most valuable was that you stayed with us and you heard our stories and you gave us a hug or you said hello or you respected what we had to say. You gave us time. You treated us like equals. That's the biggest gift you can give anyone. And, you know, it's not always going to be well-received. People have PTSD out there. They're not treated well. Some of them are dealing with mental illness or addiction, or they've just been, they just have no trust. And you, get, you can give them that too. They're allowed to feel that way. But don't make that person the poster child of every other person that you could have an interaction with. And respect their space if they shy away or they don't, you know, maybe if you pass them the next day, give them a little bit more of a smile. Or if they really don't want to be engaged with, give them that. That's respectful. What about in situations where you see somebody asking for money? I know a lot of people mm -hmm. are conflicted about that. Do you give yeah. that person money? Okay, so I love this question. Uh, I think it's, you know, I struggle with it a lot too. First of all, a lot of common sense things here. We don't carry money with us when we're on outreach. What I recommend people do if they want to be helpful in the day-to-day -day and they want to offer something more than a smile or a hello is to get something like a meal card. You know, pay attention to the area you're in. What you're looking for with a meal card is you're looking for a place like a Starbucks or a Subway or a McDonald's. I know it's not always healthy, but you're not their parent and it's hot, delicious food. If it's something in that area that they could easily walk to, you're not just giving them a meal. You're also giving them access to possibly a restroom and indoors. They're a paying customer. You know, the very people that need access to running water and a bathroom and all of these other things that don't have homes, they're not allowed to go into most establishments like a housed person could just walk in and out even if they didn't buy something. If you look like you're experiencing homelessness, you might not even get in the front door. So if you're giving somebody a meal card, a very easy thing to carry, 10 or $15, they can share it with one of their friends, they can, they can have it multiple times, you're giving them access to indoors, possibly a bathroom, and food. Is there anything else you want to add or anything else you want people to know about homelessness? I would say this. This is, a, this is a big deal. If you have created a relationship with somebody who's experiencing homelessness, don't ever make a promise you can't keep. It's just in general not good to do. But people that are experiencing homelessness have come from 
so many broken promises and and you know they're expecting you to break their hearts or 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 not show up again so over deliver and under promise i would also say please don't ever take a picture of them or share information about them unless you have their specific permission really clear permission that's really important one of the big things I learned was, I'll ask you this, maybe you'll know. Why do you think most women and LGBT youth and youth in general are out on the streets? Because they don't feel safe in their home environments? Yeah, domestic violence. And it, it's into the, out of the frying pan and into the fire. But there's no other choice. Their home isn't a home anymore. Is that a lot of people who are out there that are dealing with drug addiction, they weren't addicted until they got on the streets. So when you're on the streets, for whatever reason, say it's domestic violence, all of a sudden, you are in danger 24-7. And sleeping at night is not a good idea, especially if you're a woman. So you have to start sleeping during the day. Because it's light outside, there's more people around, you're less likely to get attacked or robbed. And you're really uncomfortable because you now you don't have a bed, you don't have a, you don't get a lot of sleep. You've probably been had to fend off attackers in one way or another. You probably also are beginning to have some health problems if you didn't already have them before you left. And you don't have an ability to have a job. And you're in pain and terrified all the time. And somebody comes up to you and says, hey, do you want to just smoke a little of this? It's, you know, it's only two bucks. Or, and it'll take the pain away. Or it'll, it'll help you. A lot of people say they start taking uh, street drugs uh, because it keeps them up. Fentanyl is in so many drugs at this point, And you don't know what you're taking. But if you, and it's, they're so highly addictive. They're so hard to get off of. But you take it the first time because you have to stay up. You have no choice. You have to stay up to protect your stuff because somebody took it all. You know, you got, you had a bad incident the day, night before. And then you're addicted to drugs on top of everything else. And it takes away pain and it keeps you up. And then it also takes away your hope. We want to be able to get, in one way or another, everybody in a home. But not everyone wants or is capable of being housed in the traditional sense of the word. And there are a lot of reasons for that. There are some people that we call them home free. They're fine. They're survivalists. They are enjoying being nomads. They actually, when I've encountered a lot of them, they're very helpful with other people that are living in encampments. And, you know, some of them are vets. They like living outside of the box. They're not who we concentrate on with our work. There is another group of people who, for whatever reason, be it domestic violence or PTSD from serving our country or mental illness, or a combination of all of these things. And PTSD from living out, living, experiencing homelessness for a long period of time. To all of a sudden assume, oh, let's just get them into this house and put them, put them back into quote unquote society and they'll be fine. No, you know, P 
people, you have to meet people where they are. We have now seen, you know, there's some people that we've partnered with uh, uh, groups of organizations, especially in Colorado, and we're seeing them all over the country that are either tiny houses or protected encampments that are built in parking lots that have a fence around them and resources inside in running water and, you know, community buildings and all of that. They're sometimes they're like those, um, they're those tents that they have for ice fishing. They're like really sturdy tents. They've got cots inside. Everybody has their own personal space, which is really important. And that's not the case with a lot of shelters. I think the whole shelter system needs to be re-evaluated. And this is, you know, for some people, some people, this is transitional housing. But for some people, the tiny homes or these tents, this is ideal. They have a spot. They are still outside, but they have their own privacy, their own spot. They have a community, but they don't have to be living with other people without privacy. They're being treated, that's meeting somebody halfway. Or the tiny home situation, that's meeting somebody halfway. Met this remarkable woman in Venice who suggested that a lot of the parking areas around her that weren't used in the evenings could be set up in the evenings with a locker system. This is an amazing idea. And she gave me permission to share this. And she said, I've been thinking about this for a long time, but what if these parking lots in the evening became places where people could set up their camps, there would be a locker where all their place, all their stuff would be safe, which is something every city needs is a locker system for people that are experiencing homelessness. If they could go out and do their jobs during the day and know that their stuff wasn't getting get stolen at the shelter or outside or, you know, every, wow, what a wonderful amount of freedom that would give them to get back into their life. So have a locker system that holds just their stuff, a hammock or a cot, a tent. They're there at 8 o'clock at night when the parking lot closes for the day. They get their sleep. They're in a protected, they have a security system. They've got the bathroom system, running water, all of those things. And in the morning, they pack up. They put all their things back in the locker. They go to their jobs, go on with their day. And at the end of the day, they can come back. During the day, the city can have that as parking. And at night, it can provide people that want to live that lifestyle a safe place to do it. And, you know, there's people that traveling around want an inexpensive place to camp for the night in an urban setting that's safe. They too can camp there. And it will integrate a population of people so they get to know each other better, less stigma, affordable place for people, these are these are solutions that are coming from inside people's tents. Well, that was Ren Fialka, founder of the nonprofit Spread the Love that distributes personal care, clothing, and hygiene supplies to unhoused people. You can hear Emily Cohen's entire interview with Ren at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. And up next, we're going to hear from Miranda Twitchell, who's a leader in Salt Lake City, Utah's unsheltered homeless community, right after this short break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Emily Cohen. You can find all of our episodes dating back to 2002 on our website at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. If you've got a comment or question for us, info at peacetalksradio.com is our email, info at peacetalksradio.com. As we continue our program on the unhoused populations in our cities, a lot of us wonder how best to help those living on the streets. Our next guest speaks about her personal experience facing chronic homelessness and what programs and supports have been most helpful. Miranda Twitchell is a leader in the unsheltered homeless community in Salt Lake City, Utah, and a recent graduate of the Wasatch Community Gardens Green Phoenix program, which offers women facing homelessness the opportunity to work a paid farm position while working towards stable housing and employment. I'm 45. I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I live in a tent. And um, right now I'm working for Advantage Services, which is a homeless run. Well, okay, the people that work there are basically housing challenged. And they, all the like, owner and all the management have actually been in our situation. So they help us to get back up on our feet. Are you from the Salt Lake area? Um, I got stuck here 12, um, in 2012. I stopped here for gas and I never was able to get out of here. How long have you been unhoused? So the 11 years I've been here, I've only been housed four. I've been unsheltered the rest of the time. So which term should we be using? What term do you prefer? Housing challenged, unhoused, homeless? Um, somebody actually said unconventionally housed, and I thought that was actually kind of fitting because I do have a home. It's just a tent. Sometimes it's a structure made out of tarps and wood, you know, but I do have a place to call home. What are the circumstances or series of events that led you to being housing challenged or shall we say unconventionally housed? So uh, when I stopped here, um, I left with my boyfriend and my son um, from Colorado. We went to Oregon to start it. He already had a job. Then when we got there, they wouldn't house all three of us at the shelter. Either he could be there or me and my son could be there. And the other person had to be 20 miles away and he didn't think that would be a good fit. So we were coming back to Colorado and we were going back to Colorado. Stopped here so that we didn't, you know, so we could get gas money to work labor ready back when labor ready was there. She went out in the car and uh, he got a job and then we split up and then I just kind of ended up here. And now I'm just trying to get back on my feet and it's really, really hard. And you're living outside in a 10 community? Yes. Well, right now I am because, you know, they come and they do sweeps um, on a regular basis and uh, they throw away everything you own. And so basically then you start all over again. Problem is there's not enough shelter space and there's not enough housing, affordable housing for us. Can you talk about what those sweeps are? The government comes in and what happens? So the mayor, um, it used to be where the health department would come in and they found like biohazards, you know, people not using proper, you know, waste facilities or too much trash. And then um, they'd give us 24 hours notice and then they'd come in and they'd be, so we had, we had 24 hours to get our stuff out. They've stopped doing um, the warnings. They're doing what they call rapid relocation where the cops come in with uh, the clean team and they give you 10 minutes and then they start throwing everything away. And because they made a law that you can't um, pitch a tent in Salt Lake County. The problem is there's, at the last count last year, uh, there's 30,551 homeless in Salt Lake County. And there's only 1,100 shelter beds at max capacity. So that leaves a lot of us with nowhere to go. And we can't pitch a tent, so they just really keep them relocating us. So we move from place to place, never knowing exactly when we're going to be 
sweat or if we're going to come home and find everything gone or not. So it's very difficult. And in this cold weather, it's even worse. How do you stay warm? It's all a matter of like how do you insulate your tent. You have to put insulation on the bottom, you know, because the ground will suck the heat out of you. You put a insulation on the outside, like sheets, blankets, tarps, bisqueen, because tarps are porous, bisqueen's not. You try to trap it in there, but then you have kind of some kind of heater. You'd rather be hand sanitizer, we burn. We do propane a lot, but you have to be careful with the propane because you have to vent it or else you can asphyxiate yourself. Or if there's a leak, you can actually burn your tent down. Hand sanitizer, if you knock it over, it'll spill. We use sternos, hand warmers in your blankets. Pretty much we try to pack people in, a bunch of people in a tent when it's really, really cold. Um, a lot of people get animals, you know, to help um, cuddle with them at night to keep warm. It's it's a constant battle. Um, they have emergency shelters like there's one open right now because we are in the teens and uh, single digits. So they open up where it's an all-night movie night, technically not a shelter. And you could stay there from 8 to 8. Are you completely outside right now or are you in some sort of shelter at the moment? Right now I'm in the, I'm in the greenhouse at the um, Wasatch Gardens Community Garden Farm for the Green okay. Phoenix program. So um, I graduated the program, and so I came here because it's a nice, quiet space. Because um, I was figured my tent would be too dark, and being outside would be too bright and too cold. When housed people encounter people who are unhoused or housing challenged on the street, a lot of people wonder what to do. You know, people feel conflicted. Do I give this person money? How can I help? What would you say to someone who's wondering these things? Number one thing, don't treat us differently than anybody else. Say hello. If we say hello, say hello back. Don't cross the street. Don't act like we're diseased or um, inflicted. I mean, I'm not unhoused because I want to be unhoused. I'm unhoused because of situations I couldn't control. And trying to keep it a job when you're homeless is really hard, too, because there's no way to charge your phones or something. So, yeah, there are some of those that defecate on the streets or um, they're drug addicts or the, um, the, the people that are mentally ill that don't have anywhere to go. But not all of us are here by choice. We, we're all struggling just... And things, if you treat us like we're nothing, we start to become nothing or believe that we're nothing because, you know, the way people treat you is how you become, you start to feel about yourself. So just treat us like we're normal. Treat us like we're regular people. I got very big on the panhandling because if I'm an able-bodied person, I should be working. But sometimes it's a matter of eating. That's up to your own discretion. But if it's cold, come out with hot chocolate. Come out with a blanket, hand warmers, just something like that. I mean, that means a lot because it shows us that we're human just like you. We're all the same. You know, we're all, when it comes straight down to it, you know, at the end of the day, when we, when we go to this door, we're all going to take the same thing with us, only ourselves. And, you know, we just, we just want to be treated like we're, like we're okay. It, it hurts a lot when people like look at you, look down at you or they mistreat you or they can't say hi back to you, you know, or they cross the street. I mean, you're like, you start to feel like you, like you're like a leper. We're just people, you know, come talk to us, you know, you know, sometimes you can learn a lot just by talking to somebody. And sometimes we just need somebody to talk to because we're alone. We, we end up isolating ourselves because we're embarrassed, because we're ashamed, because we struggle. And we there's some of us that just don't want to ask for help because we're not sure how to ask somebody for help. It was very difficult telling my family that I was homeless. Again, especially when I you know I had my son with me and stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a struggle just to even face, you know, just regular people in your family. I mean, how do we face strangers? I mean, just treat us like we're okay. Is your family able to help at all? Or is there anyone you feel comfortable going to? They figured I put myself here, I can get myself out. I mean, they give me, you know, I talk to him sometimes. I mean, it's a very strange relationship with my family. Sometimes because of I'm homeless, cause, cause, but sometimes it's just the history of the past, you know. And that, that's just another reason why some of us end up homeless is because, you know, if you have a strange relationship with your family and friends or, you know, basically LA family, when you get into a tight spot, you can't ask them for help to, hey, you know, can you help me out with my rent this month? Because they think the wrong thing and um, they won't help you. And then you end up losing your place or whatever. 
it's a hard cycle. Because I mean, if like, you know, if I had a better relationship with my parents, I could have asked them, hey, can you help me out with rent? Because my son's in the hospital and they might have helped me. But because of the strain, then that's where you end up getting. Lack of support group is, you know, what keeps us on it. Lot too. I got lucky with Wasatch Gardens. I did. But you're a leader within your community and you're providing support for other unhoused people living on the street. Can you talk about how that came to be? A lot of people look to me like a mom because I, people call me a hoarder and they say you have too much stuff. But the thing is, is if you need a blanket, you know, you can come to me. I'd rather have, let's both each have one blanket than me be really warm and you'd be freezing. So I will give anything and everything that I have possible. And I have contact with um, some really awesome people that I can, if I need supplies in an emergency situation, I can call them. They'll help me find the supplies for people. Right now I'm at the Coconut Hut, um, which is part of the, the community garden that I graduated from. There's a program to help women, chronically homeless women get off the streets. They helped me to get back into the workforce and get retrained to how to work. And I moved on to advantage services, but um, she has a coconut head, which has blankets and hand sanitizer and clothing and pretty much everything we need. I have those resources where I can contact people. How is it that you gain trust of people in your community? I'm just there if they need me. It's just, you know, because like when you're a stranger, everybody looks suspiciously like, what are they going to do? Because there is some thieving that goes on, but when people are desperate and they're freezing, you know, they don't know how to ask for help. They're going to take the help that they need. And um, so I was just like, I was like, people are like, hey, if you're hungry, if you're thirsty, you know, if you need something, come ask me. If I can't, if I can't supply it, I'll help you. And that people saw me helping this person, helping that person. And then they started spreading the word. And so, you know, basically it became just, just talking to people and it's slowly gaining their trust. It's difficult at times. I mean, you're never sure who you can trust on the streets because you might think that you can trust somebody and they turn on you. But we're all in the same boat. We're all suffering. You know, we don't help each other, then who's going to help us? You know, we got to band together and help each other. Or else we're, so we're all surviving instead of just some of us surviving. Have you seen people get off the street and stay off the street? And how have they done it? Yes. Um, my friend, Petey, she's in her place and she's doing really well. Through the community gardens, there's a lot of people that went through the Washington Community Gardens Green Phoenix program and they're on the, off the streets. I've seen people that, um, when given it the right chance, um, get the right case manager, but the case managers are overloaded right now. They get places and they stay out. The main thing you got to learn is that if you get up, if you if you leave the streets, you got to leave the streets behind, and that's where people, because this is all we know. There's no real retraining how to be a member of society, because we've been in survival mode for so long. It's kind of it's hard to get out of that survival mode. Flight or flight or freeze, and that's what we live in on a constant basis because we're never never sure what's going to happen. The advantage services is a very good program for us because they. They mainly how um, employ people in our in my situation, and they basically do slow income and get you back into the workforce. And they, you know, they kind of help retrain you to get into a job because it's hard to go from doing nothing to doing the job and being okay. So there's a couple of different programs that when people go through it, like all the people at advanced services in the management positions have all been where I'm at. She, uh, Jared's been off the streets for like 15 years. Um, James has been off the re- streets for several years. Also, I mean, like. The owner, he was on the streets at one point in time and he got off of them. They're, they're motivators, they're good motivators because, you know, when you start to feel down and you start to feel like, you know, I, I just can't do it. It's like, oh, come on, you got this. You know, I do have an addiction problem that I suffer with and um, I can call them and they'll help to encourage me not to use and just keep on, yep, you got to come to work. You know, I, we got some stuff in the shop to do. Why don't you come in here instead of doing that? You know, so they keep me focused on what's important. And that's what we need is we need people to help keep us focused, you know, and not treat us like we're, our, our issue, whatever issue that I put us on the streets. We're not that issue. We're a person that suffers from that issue. I've, I've, I've developed a really good support group, and I'm trying to turn around and be that support group to other people in the community, encourage them to come and fly and help them find their jobs and get to the coconut hut and places like that. Sounds like you feel hopeful then. 
I have no problem. I mean, the most, who's the most famous homeless person ever? Jesus. There's always been homelessness and there's always going to be homelessness. If we treat the homeless as part of our community and part of our society, then they're going to be able to integrate back into society easier. Instead of isolating us, because if you isolate us, then how do we get back into, you know, if you're separate, how do you get past that fence? You know, we can't, we got we to get rid of the fences. So you say there's not really training for how to be part of society again. What sort of assistance would be the most helpful? What sort of training do you need? So, okay, so when you don't have a schedule, okay, you're not used to getting up at a certain time. We have the problem where there's no place to really charge our devices. Anywhere we go and charge, they end up putting locks on them. All the restaurants basically have taken out their, their plugs. It's like you go and buy a meal, you used to be able to play in and like charge your stuff. Well, you don't have to do that. We have to have some place to charge so that we can get up on time. See, the Green Phoenix program helped me with that because there were times like I woke up late and I came in and they were under, you know, they weren't, it wasn't immediately you're fired. They would talk to me and they coached me and they'd say, okay, what can we do? They got me an alarm clock that, that had batteries and they made sure that I had batteries in my alarm clock. So if I couldn't charge my phone, then I had that. Um, I was able to charge at work. Or I was able to charge the phones here and my portables. So I made sure I had that. But, you know, even, even interacting with people because there's a stigma on the homeless and people treat us a certain way. And so we, we're all constantly on guard. When you go into a new workplace, you still have that guard up because those are the people that have been ridiculing or hurting you. So it's hard for you to interact with them properly. And that, I think that's the biggest thing is that when you're treated different, you act different. If we're treated the same, we act the same. So people need to be understanding like, okay, this person is in this situation and I'm, let's treat them just like everybody else. Don't treat them like they're homeless. Don't treat them like they're different. Treat them like humans. And if, they, mm-hmm. if we're treated like humans, then we act more like humans and then we can integrate easier. Um, I think yeah, programs like the Green Phoenix program or Adventist Services, places like that where um, they know and understand our situation. If you don't understand the true inner person and you know, true heart of homelessness, which is the individual person, you can't help them. You know, because we're all just people that have suffered a loss, sometimes a fire. There's people that are out here because their house started on fire, they lost everything, you know, because they had no savings. Some people have gotten sick, and so they met the brain minimum, brain minimum got sick, and they ended up homeless. So you were you have to treat us as individual humans and not like a stereotype. And then by working with us individually, we can become we can integrate back into society better because we don't have that guard up. As long as we keep the guard up, and you guys have the guard, you have that stigmatism, you're gonna have those judgments at the end. As long as there's judgment either way, we're not gonna be able to integrate back. So it's just people have to understand that we're just like them. We just need to have, we need to hand up, not a hand, hand out. Because giving out money is well, great, you know, but the thing is that will that'll feed us for a day. If you have work right, you know, even just saying, hey, can I pick you up and I can work in my garden? Little things like that, that, that the, the community you do. I'm going to pick you up at eight o'clock and you're going to come work in my garden to get it ready or um, do some lawn work for me. You know, try to help us integrate easily because we're not always going to be on time at first because we're not used to it. We have to get a schedule and a routine done. And if we're having issues, talk to us. Say, okay, listen, what what is it? What are the things that you need to do in the morning before you come to work? So let's do a time frame for each of these. Walk, work with us. Just talk to us. You know, sometimes we don't do well, too well with time management. We don't do well with budgeting because we live by like by by seat of our pants. Communicating with us and you know, like listening to us and just being aware of um, who we are and what we're doing and what we're trying to do. Because like people give up on us way too easy, and then we give up on ourselves. Is there anything else that you want people to know about homelessness and what people are experiencing or your experience? If you want to help somebody, find out what they need. 
say, what do you need right now? I need a tarp. I need green propane tanks. And get them that so that you know the money's going to what you want them to go to. There are a lot of mentally ill on the streets. Don't yell at them. Don't throw things at them. Don't honk your horn in the middle of the night when you go by a camp. Don't shoot up guns or air, air pistols. Don't shoot BBs at us because we've had BBs shot at us. A lot of us are struggling just trying to get up off our feet. I mean, we, people go to labor ready and they don't work. Find it, you know, when you don't have a fixed address, people don't want to, you know, hire you. Um, we don't always have a phone to get jobs. I mean, so we're we're trying, okay? Just know that a lot of us are trying to get up where, out of where we're at. And just treat us like normal human beings. I mean, if you want to help us, talk to us, you know? Out of all the times that I've been homeless, only one time has a, a, has a, a group come to actually help at our, at our camp. They actually sat down and they broke bread with us. It was some Mennonites. They actually came up and they sat down and they didn't just give us a meal. They had a meal with us. Mm-hmm. So they sat down, they ate and they talked and they, 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 they sang you know, some songs to us. And, but they, they, they made us a part of their community and they made us a part of them. As long as we feel a part of something, we're going to act like it. If we don't feel a part of something, we put a part, we're not going to act, you know, we just, we just want to belong again. We just want to be a part of the community again. Once people realize that we're just people like that just want to be, we just want to be a part of it again. We just want to be part of society. We just don't know how to get there. There's a gap between where we're at and where we want to be. And anybody that can help fill in that gap, is going to build a bridge that's going to take a lot of people across. And we need a hand up, not a hand out. Grab us and pull us forward, you know. Encourage us. Just love us. I just want our world to be a happier place. And I want to be long in it again. That was Miranda Twitchell. She's a resident of Salt Lake City, Utah, and is a leader in the unhoused community there. You can find links to the employment and training programs that she spoke of at our website, peacetalksradio.com. In just a minute, we'll learn more about one of the most successful programs in the country that has reduced chronic homelessness. Stay tuned after this short break. You're tuned to Peace Talks Radio, the radio show and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Emily Cohen. And today she's exploring homelessness and successful solutions to this often chronic challenge. A model program known as Housing First prioritizes giving people housing without the usual prerequisites, such as addiction treatment or employment. This Housing First model, and the city of Houston in particular, is touted as having some of the most success in reducing chronic homelessness. The idea is is that if you have stable housing, you're better able to take care of other aspects of your life, like mental health. Emily Cohen speaks next with Ava Thibodeau-Grasic, a social worker who's worked in the field of homelessness since 1996 
and she's currently the CEO of the Temenos Community Development Corporation, an organization that provides permanent supportive housing to people facing long-term chronic homelessness in Houston, Texas. Ava talks first about how the model has evolved since it started in Houston. You can see our learning in our buildings. Um, our first building, when you walk in, there's a lobby and then, you know, corridors, a very, you know, rather traditional multifamily housing. In our second building, we realized that we needed more offices for case managers, um, caseworkers, things like that, and also that we needed more common space. In the building that we're building right now, we have lots of office space for supportive services. We have probably five times as much common space and that common space can be segmented in different ways. It can also be opened up to each other. When you look at, again, the design of our buildings, the need for there to be a place to come together and break bread and eat um, and share in food and meal times, but also you know, in uh, yoga and art classes, in meditation, in, you know, silence, a place for reading, a place to be part of a community where you can still be yourself and find yourself. And so I would say that a lot of our learnings, we've stayed deeply, deeply rooted in housing first and in not making sobriety or medication adherence, you know, a requirement of housing. But what we have learned is the importance of community and the importance of bringing people together in order to really heal them um, and heal heal themselves through community and connection. So one criticism about the Housing First model has been that people are not required to be sober or to have all their issues addressed before getting housing. Housing First flips that on its head. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you a question. Do you have neighbors? Do any of them utilize substances such as alcohol or smoking? And so why should we hold people who are experiencing the ongoing trauma and crisis of living in homelessness to standards that are higher than what we hold ourselves and, and our other housed neighbors to? That's always my basic answer. But even beyond that, I would argue that, and time and efforts have shown this, that housing itself is a powerful healing intervention. And to ask someone who is in a state of crisis, trauma, and feeling unsafe to do really oftentimes very deep emotional and, and you know trauma healing, unhoused, not knowing if they're gonna eat, not knowing where their next meal is gonna come from, not feeling any sense of physical safety to, oh, get sober and let's do some mental health counseling. And why don't you just self-actualize while you're at it? <laughs> um, you know, it's it's not realistic. It essentially, it sounds like goes off the principle of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You have to take care of your basic needs before you can have that higher level of self-actualization. Absolutely. And what we do find is that once people are housed, once they have time to spend in communal settings, uh, you know, we do a breakfast club so that people can come down and, you know, get a cup of coffee, have some breakfast. We serve lunch. Um, you know, we have activities or movie times throughout the day. We're staffed 24 seven. So there's always someone to talk to. And we find that just by increasing nutrition, by offering opportunities for, you know, safe and sober socialization and, times to be in community, it actually decreases a lot of that substance use and it helps heal uh, serious mental illness. 
So from what I understand, Houston's Housing First model is more successful than it has been in other cities. Why do you think that is? Really, when we undertook changing our system work, so when we went really from deserving or when we went from being housing ready to housing first as a system, um, we started really, really, really early and we had incredibly motivated political leadership at both our city and county levels. We also had new leadership within our public housing authorities for the first time ever in the greater Houston area, our housing authority leadership saw that they had a place in ending homelessness. And so they brought vouchers to the table, which allowed us to leverage other resources and use them more effectively so that we could expand housing in this housing first model. Um, we also, as a community, and this is really critical, um, most communities, providers, service providers have really held onto the decision-making power of where resources are allocated. And as a person who runs a nonprofit, you know, I get that. Um, you, you want that power. I don't wanna give up my piece of the pie because I have to fight for my organization. At the same time, that makes me not a good system level decision maker. I can't dispassionately look at where resources should be allocated. And so in Houston, with a lot of Department of Housing and Urban Affairs, they gave us tons of technical assistance and really, really, really amazing people from all over the country <laughs> spent years in Houston um, helping us to you know, change the way that we did business. And one of those things is that we put together a governance board called the COC Steering Committee, Continuum of Care Steering Committee. And that steering committee does have provider representatives on it who represent providers. However, it is mostly made up of the folks who have the resources, private philanthropists, the Veterans Administration, our housing authority directors, our um, housing economic community development department directors, those are the folks who are at the table, really making the decisions about the policies and how we should work as a system. So it's the collaboration is what you're saying that's made this work. In other cities, agencies or nonprofits are kind of working against each other. They are. And, and in a lot of areas, too, you know, you'll have just different jurisdictions within, you know, a homeless response region. And those jurisdictions won't even work together. For us, our city, our county, and three other entitlement jurisdictions all came together and came up with, we have common policies, we have common rules, and we make funding decisions as a group so that we're getting really the biggest effect and the most efficiency for the dollars that are available across our region. Can you describe what housing looks like in this system? You get a voucher and then... What kind of apartment comes next? So um, at Temenos, the units that we own and operate are all micro-efficiencies, um, but they do have you know, a kitchen, their own bathroom, you know, furniture. The space is really, you know, in the common space is where you have your most living area. And in those cases, we work directly with the housing authority. And so we have vouchers on each of the rooms. And so we help people, you know, do their applications. When we have folks who are going to be living out in the community, we go and we do landlord engagement. We talk with them. We explain that, you know, this is how the rent will be paid, whether it's directly by Temenos um, with HUD funds or whether it's through a voucher. 
we really try to take that burden off of the, the client who's trying to get housed. You know, we're there every step of the way to help make sure they have all their documents for move in, to do all of the paperwork. It can be incredibly overwhelming when you're looking at like 80 pages to for an application for a housing voucher. And then intimidating, of course, to talk to landlords and you don't know, you know, what to ask all the time um, or how you're going to be received and perceived. So we go with folks to do that. And then we're there with them on the day of move-in to help them walk through and say, yep, no, okay, everything looks like it's in good condition. And then to really talk about, hey, let's let's look at like how your appliances work. You know, let's make sure that you understand how to do this. Let's check out the laundry room, you know. What is the average length of stay that people are in the system? Our average is typically, I would say around seven years. A lot of people who come to us because you have to remember that when people have lived unhoused for long amounts of time, studies have shown that they age at a rate of about 15 years older than their housed counterparts. Every once in a while, we have people who live into what, you know, housed people would consider old age, but, um, you know, it's more typical that people are seeing advanced age conditions in their fifties and sixties. For many people, we are their last home. While it is hard to lose people who we've welcomed and embraced, what I always tell my staff and our volunteers and the rest of the community is that at least at least they died with the dignity of a roof over their head and a community where people knew their name. They weren't John Doe under the bridge found by the police. Other people, you know, they really, after several years of receiving services and having, I would say, the the resolution of trauma of having been unhoused and being able to wake up in their own space and control their own environment, they do decide to take that voucher and move elsewhere, just out into the community where there aren't supportive services. That's typically how people move on. Now, when we're working with younger people, like the, you know, aging out of foster care and, and um, you know, different criminal justice um, and juvenile detention systems, that typic, that group we're typically looking at, you know, helping them to move on and to gain, gain skills once they've, you know, recovered from their trauma. You know, we have people who've lived with us for seven, eight, nine years. We still have some of the first residents who moved into our buildings in 2009 living with us. Our very first resident has actually moved out and uh, has come back to be a staff member. <laughs> so yeah, so she, she's been with us um, for the for the long haul. And we have we have multiple uh, people who are current or former residents who are also now on our staff. Can you just talk briefly about how the unhoused population in Houston has changed since the housing first model became the norm? Since 2011, when we embraced housing first and shifted our entire system from housing ready to housing first, um, we've reduced homelessness by 63%. And you have to remember that, you know, homelessness is not a one and done. It's always a dynamic picture. All of the upstream systems that are extremely broken, racist, inadequate, you know, so on and so forth, are still driving people into homelessness. And so, you know, there's just been this this constant churn to keep people housed and to keep on housing. Year over year, for the most part, we have continued to reduce those those numbers. The last several years, we had a slight bump up 
during COVID, but it, it was fairly negligible. We've been, we've stayed around when you look at like a snapshot picture of one night in the city of Houston, you know, how many people are sleeping unsheltered. We've stayed around 1,500 on, on any given night in Houston of people living unsheltered. And that is down from 8,000. Wow, those are some remarkable numbers. I imagine that the experience of being in the city has also changed for other residents. Nationwide, I think that's something that a lot of people are struggling with. Just how the cityscape has changed so much in the last few years with the dramatic increase in tent encampments and people living on the street. But in Houston, the opposite has happened. Can you speak to that? Well, you know, so what's fascinating about Houston is that our, when I moved here in 97, um, I lived in an area that has now been gentrified or revitalized <laughs> into two distinct, very urban, very higher income areas. At the time though, it was, when I moved here, it was pretty much abandoned houses. There wasn't any commerce. All of the homeless service providers were kind of in this area. Lots of, you know, prostitution, drug activity, and people didn't live downtown. They didn't live near downtown. You know, the suburbs were the place to be. Um, after five o'clock, Monday through Friday, and on the weekends, there was nobody downtown except for people who are experiencing street homelessness. So a lot of tax dollars were reinvested into these areas in order to make them more vibrant, to make them livable, to you know bring in um, dollars and business and all of these things. It's been wonderful, but now you know by all of this amazing stuff happening and by we have a bayou system that um, a lot of people used to when we would do street outreach we'd be out under the bridges in the bayous well those have really i mean our our city has done a beautiful job but they've been made into beautiful parkways and walkways and biking trails and so all of these activities have served to push people experiencing unsheltered homelessness out of hidden spots where people didn't go really into the limelight. And so while numbers are down, optically, people see more street homelessness than what they used to. Is there anything you're hopeful for with addressing homelessness in this country on a more national scale? HUD and Congress have stepped up and have did a one-time special allocation specifically to address people with the most long-term homelessness and unsheltered homelessness. And they put out a request for proposals basically for funding uh, nationwide outside of their regular competition time to infuse additional dollars um, into systems to address that. I, th I think and I'm hopeful that the the problems of homelessness, of unstable housing, and of housing cost burdens on families and the extreme need for affordable housing is reaching a place nationally where it's getting a lot more attention. And I'm, I'm hoping that we will continue to invest heavily in that sector. Is there anything else you want to add that we did not address today? For whatever it's worth, I do want to point out, and, and other communities do have this, um, but we have a very, very long running relationship with our law enforcement 
starting with the Houston Police Department. And then they did a lot of training for the Harris County Sheriff's Office. And both of them have what are called HOT officers, and it stands for Homeless Outreach Teams. And they have specially trained officers who are paired with someone from our mental health authority. And they do street outreach every single day. And, you know, they go places and are, have access to things that a lot of our other outreach teams don't. And they've been a really huge part of helping people get housed and get connected to housing and to services. And so that, and then they also have done extensive training and partner again with mental health authorities to have mobile crisis outreach teams and to have uh, crisis intervention response teams who, you know, you can call and say, you know, I need a CERT trained officer because we have a mental health crisis going on and they'll come out with a social worker and, you know, respond. And so being able to work with law enforcement with some of the ways that they're uniquely positioned in their authority and power, but where they're also, you know, joining with the forces of ending homelessness has been really powerful. Ava, thank you so much for speaking with me and for your commitment to assisting the unhoused population in Houston. That's Ava Thibodeau-Grasic, a clinical social worker and the CEO of Temenos Community Development Corporation in Houston, Texas. You can find out more information about Ava and all of our guests at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. There you can see photos, read and share transcripts, sign up for our podcast, and make a donation to keep this program going into the future, all at peacetalksradio.com. We receive no money from your local station. Support for Peace Talks Radio comes directly from listeners like you. Also, a bit from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. For co founder Suzanne Kreider, Emily Cohen, and all of our correspondents, thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. <laughs>